I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. So let's just get right into it, because today we have our first return guest, and this conversation is absolutely fascinating. Yep. For everybody who's listened from the beginning, you might remember that Phil Tab was our very first guest on this podcast. In that conversation, we talked all about biophilic urbanism and how to build resilient communities for the future. You also might remember that Phil teased some of his new research back then on thin places, which is this incredibly intriguing concept about places that blur the line between earthly and spiritual realms. Now, after a couple more years of research, Phil has a new book coming out this summer called Thin Place Design, Architecture of the Numinous. In this conversation, we talk all about what constitute a thin place experience, the differences and similarities between awe and serenity, and of course, the sacred experiences we find in nature. So before we get into it, a reminder about Phil's background. He is the Emeritus Professor of Architecture at Texas A&M, the author of multiple books, including The Greening of Architecture, Serene Urbanism, and Culture and Spirituality. He is also the master planner for the Serenby community, which is where Phil and I both live, and he'll be speaking about thin places and nature this April at the Biophilic Leadership Summit. I'm so excited for that talk. Okay, so if you're interested in attending the summit and meeting Phil in person, head to our show notes for more details. You know, you also get to meet both of us, Jennifer. (laughs) Very true, very true. All right, let's get right to our conversation with Phil Tab. Hi, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you know that you are the very first guest who is a return guest? You were our, I think, kickoff podcast way back when. Jen is here. Jen was feeling terrible yesterday. I know. I was (laughs) much better today. And Phil, we are so thrilled to have you back because you know how much we love your work and you have so much going on. So we can't wait to dive into this conversation with you today. I'm glad we're doing it today because I was a little nervous yesterday. So now I've had time (laughs) to kind of relax. Okay, good, good. (laughs) Set yourself into that intention. So I really want to jump right into thin places and basically start out by telling us, what does that mean? What is a thin place? Thin place, according to the definitions that I've been able to come up with, is basically, well, actually, thin places are locations and settings where a thin veil exists between the earthly realm of our everyday lives and the heavenly or spiritual world beyond us. And that world possesses a kind of energy or a qualitative difference. So it's also another way of talking about sacred places, but it's a relatively newer term that describes it in a little bit different ways. The veil is a separator or, in some cases, a disguiser of things that are sacred. And when that veil becomes thinner it creates greater access for us to these sort of sacred realms. 
You, you asked, and you're, you both of us are like faded. <laughs> oh, I, I, have a million, I have a million questions only because, Phil, you mentioned thin places in the first episode with you. And I think all of us were like, wait, what? What are, what are thin places? Because I had never heard of the phrase thin places before. So when you discussed this a few years ago with us, was that really the beginning of the study more and really working on this book? Or were you already like really far deep into the thin places concept? Well, can you refresh my memory as to oh, what year was the first one? <laughs> so how was many? That two? So that twenty twenty one. I guess it was like the beginning of twenty twenty one. We recorded with you. Yeah, I came across the term. I would say almost ten years ago, uh-huh. and I was editing a book called Architecture, Culture, and Spirituality with two other guys. And one of the chapters in my section was about some land artwork by Rebecca Crinky. And she used the term thin places in that article. And so later on, I contacted her and asked her a little bit about thin places. And then as I began to read about it, again, this is about eight or 10 years ago, I was beginning to find out that it's very similar to sacred spaces and sacred mm-hmm. places. And I've been, I think, studying sacred places since about the mid-1980s. I was taking classes with uh, Dr. Keith Critchlow on sacred geometry, And for me, geometry led into place design. Mm. And because my doctoral work was on village planning, villages are places. And so the kind of the confluence of geometry, place, villages, all began to suggest sacred places to me. And then as my career developed off and on from doing secular projects and sacred projects, in the early 90s, I actually had some of my first commissions where the client actually wanted what they were calling sacred places, which I would Mm. now call thin places. It's been a while, but it's been off and on. But over the last five years, and I've been more seriously sort of looking into what a thin place is, and then I decided to write a white paper on the thin place. Maybe that was about the time that I was doing the first podcast, which was just a way to begin to get down Mm -hmm. some of the ideas and maybe to differentiate let's say, thin places versus sacred places, and then move on from there. Of course, I was influenced by the early work of Rudolf Otto, who in the early 1900s wrote about numinous space. Mm -hmm. So then I started, before I got into thin places, I started researching numinous. And I found that to be very interesting. And then about two years ago, I began to dig into thin places and then got very deep into what is now called positive emotion theory. And so the positive emotions are the consequence of an experience of a thin place. It's because a thin place is a place, but since we're human, when we experience these places, we have an experience. And that experience is an emotional experience. In researching that... I found out that there has been a lot of research over the last 20 years, mainly out of the University of California, Berkeley, on awe experiences. Mm -hmm. And this is all evidence-based research. And so getting involved in Decker Keltner's work and others, Summer Allen, I began to really understand the nature of this particular emotional response. Mm -hmm. That led me to going back to thin places and discovering that, at least in my mind, the 
emotional responses or the kinds of experiences you get from thin places are not just awe experiences. Awe is very inspiring and it's very stimulating. For me, the more calming and relaxing, in a way, healing spaces were also a consequence of thin places. So then I started looking into the research and found out that in the 1960s, there was a lot of scientific research on serenity, on the emotion of serenity, by the national nursing associations as a need to try and modify healing spaces for people that were terminally ill. And so serenity designs, in a sense, or serenity-oriented designs could help healing. So then I found out about their research, and in a way, it paralleled the awe research, but had Mm. very different outcomes, where Mm. one is very stimulating and the other is very calming. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer. Guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The Biophilic <laughs> Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. The other day you showed me an emotion wheel that we'll link to, but I thought that was really interesting to think about serenity and awe and where they sit on this wheel. There were what, 29 or 32 emotions. Yeah. Will you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Robert came across or developed this wheel in 1962, but Mm -hmm. I think emotion and emotion wheels have been studied for quite a while. I think the current, understanding of the number of emotions is about 27. But on this particular wheel, there are 32. And I think I was mentioning this to you. It's partly due to the geometry of the wheel. because it's divided, <laughs> They need, it. they need to fill up some into, more space. Yeah, into eight <laughs> kind of legs. But then serenity legs, sits between, you know, sort of this, and I'm looking at the wheel right now, reading, you know, interest, acceptance, love, joy, or awe. In it, interestingly, sits between apprehension, distraction, sort of with surprise and fear and amazement, to your point that one is a little more engaging or action or 
ish. And then the other one is much more acceptance, even though love and joy and optimism are, you know, we think of as positive, but I just thought that was an interesting differentiator. I liked it. When I saw the wheel, I began to obviously picked out serenity and awe as elements of that. But as I was sharing with you is looking at the other emotions that surround what I call, let's say the serenity Mm -hmm. cluster of emotions Ah. versus the Mm -hmm. awe cluster of emotions, I think is kind of interesting in terms of what's happening when you experience a thin place. Mm -hmm. And I even think that you can go to a thin place, depending on what it is, and flip back and forth between these different emotions. I mean, mean, you could have a very calming emotion looking at a flower next to a brook, but then all of a sudden get totally inspired and really turned Mm. on, you know, so you would experience the awe emotion. So anyway, I haven't really talked too much about those different. I've talked about the differences, but I haven't talked about how they can kind of interact back and forth. Because of you, I'm always thinking about thin places when I see an incredible sunrise or I see like a light coming through a space or a room. I always think that's that thin place. Are there different times during the day or can people experience thin places just by understanding what a thin place is and how it impacts our well-being? I mean, can anyone be open to a thin place if they're aware of it? Or people are just like, oh, it's whatever and I don't care. But if people are more aware of it, do they become more like, oh, wow, this is important for my well-being? I think there's two answers to that. One answer is that you should not go in with preconceptions. In other words, if you go in more as an open book, then you're more likely to attract, let's say, the magical qualities of a thin place rather than Mm -hmm. the more obvious. You go to a waterfall, right, and it's going to be exhilarating. You've got all the sound of the water and the visual. It's all exhilarating. But are you going to have a profound experience? So First part of that question is if you go into that experience more open, letting go of a lot of other things, then the more mystical or the magical experiences can unfold. On the other hand, if you kind of understand the anatomy of a thin place, then you may be able to identify or see some that you may not have ever thought of as a thin Mm. place. Very often I do that. I'll go to a place that's supposed to be a national monument or a great sacred well or something like that. And I go there and I'm not having the profound experiences. But, you know, if I allow myself to kind of look around and discover and open myself to other things, then all of a sudden maybe these more magical things can happen. The common wisdom is to not go to things like historic sites and and sacred places with these predetermined ideas that you're going to have this transformative experience. Sure. That makes sense. Well, and Jen was making a great point about a lot of thin places in nature, as well as you with the waterfall example. But there's also what you studied originally was sort of the numinous in architecture, if you will. So what would be some thin places, examples that architecturally that are maybe named examples that we would all recognize and or where we could stumble upon them or sort of seek them out in general? Well, all of the, probably the most beautiful buildings of the world, if you go to, you know, Google them, you'll find the Taj Mahal and Sagrada Familia and a Pantheon for me is the most incredible Mm -hmm. building. And the Duomo in Florence and buildings like that are going to be at the top of the list. But the ones that touched me the most were ones that I 
discovered in England, particularly small little parish churches that were these small stone churches, churches very modest in character and quality, and you go in and they're just so quiet. And there's just something about having that very personal relationship with that space. When I go into like Shark Cathedral, I'm blown away. And it's really more of the awe experience. And one of the elements of an awe experience is called the diminishment of the self or the small mm-hmm. self or the edge of the Grand Canyon. You feel mm-hmm. so small mm-hmm. in this grand space, right? And that's supposed to be good because what it does is creates a kind of benevolence. You mm-hmm. lose the ego. You lose your self-importance in a sense. And then you kind of give way to something that's greater than yourself. So that is, I think, a positive consequence of those. Mm-hmm. Again, in my book, I've talked about kind of the more monumental kinds of thin places, but I've really made a play for what I call the everyday or the smaller scale thin places. Because how mm-hmm. often do you go to Chartres Cathedral? Yeah, exactly. So I really made a lot of effort to try and find ways that we might be able to discover or create thin places in everyday lives in your house, in your office, in your Mm. garden, these sort of places. One of the things that I discovered, I went back to Colorado for my grandson's third birthday, and it was a real treat because he asked for me to be there. So I had had to go. And there's all the fanfare, and there was other kids having birthdays on the same day. But when it came time for the cake, it was just an amazing process because the lights dimmed, And all of a sudden, the whole attention went to my grandson. And then the cake was brought in with three candles on it. And there he was with people surrounding him, which is the boundary of a thin place. And then he had the cake itself, which was an object or what they call an elicitor of a thin place experience. And within the cake were three candles and the flames flickering. And you could see him being mesmerized by the flames. And you're asked to do what? Make a wish. So Mm -hmm. you're wishing into some sort of ethereal space, right? Mm -hmm. That the flames are kind of pointing to. And for me, I took a picture of that, and it just captured one of the most, the smallest, most intimate thin places that you can have. Wow, that's beautiful. I love that visual, don't you, Monica? Isn't that like, <laughs> oh, I, absolutely. it's magical. And it's, I love the boundaries. Everybody's coming together. I love yeah, the point of we do, right? When we do a birthday cake, it's such a universal, probably, or at least American, mm-hmm. right? That dimming the lights and the candle. I love that. That's a wonderful everyday. You know, I think probably on nature walks is probably an opportunity for people, right? It's starting to bloom here in Atlanta in the spring, and those little tulip poplars and the you know cherry blossoms that are coming out and the daffodils. Would you consider those experiences as you're sort of taken by a tree coming into bloom? Would that be a thin place, or does that have a possibility? Well, it can be absolutely. See, one of the interesting things about a thin place is it's two words, right? It's thin, mm-hmm. and it's a place. So where is the place? So if you're bending down to look at a daffodil, where is the place? Mm. I like the birthday cake. It's quite possible it's in the petals of it. And all of a sudden, your consciousness, you're losing where you are in the neighborhood or in in the woods or wherever you are. Mm. You're kind of going into this flower. 
then all of a sudden the flower itself becomes the place. And if there is an emotional charge that happens Mm -hmm. in that moment, then I definitely believe that that's a thin place. I love love that. that. Well, you just recently went to Ireland, didn't you, a few months ago to really explore thin places? Can you discuss your trip and what you might have found and all that good stuff? Absolutely. Thin places, kind of the term thin places originated out of Celtic Britain, Scotland, the Isle of Iona, and in Ireland. And although thin places are reported to be much earlier than that, in fact, places like Newgrange and Stonehenge, which are two to 3,000 years BC, are really considered thin places. But we call them sacred places, but they're really thin places. But anyway, I wanted to go back to at least one of the origins of thin places and try and find it myself. And so the first thing I did was to ask neighbors here at Serenby and on my Facebook page to give me recommendations. And I got dozens of recommendations of places to go in Ireland. And I had to kind of narrow it down. I was only there a week, and I had a rental car, so I had to kind of make a loop in the week and then determine what places I was going to go to. So I had all these expectations, right, that I'm going to go to these 10 places, and I'm going to have these wonderful experiences. I'm going to see the magic. I'm going to see leprechauns and fairies and all, all of this stuff, you know, and I'm going to be connected to this ethereal energy. And so every time I went to one of these places, there was always some kind of hassle. It's just something that really... Hard to get to, sure. ...brought me down. Like going to Newgrange, I found out you had to book like months ahead to be able to go inside, and they don't really let you get very near it. But I managed to find some peak holes through some hedges and got some great shots. Of course you did, uh, (laughs) Phil. And only you can. (laughs) and And in those moments... It was like looking at the daffodil, in a sense. Those were my moments of discovering this building and this space versus going in on a tour of the interior and having somebody blabbing out mm-hmm. about the history of the place. Another place I went to was an oratory really right on the West Coast. And originally, it was designed as a pilgrimage site for people mm-hmm. to go there and have sort of their last prayers. That oratory is, was like a chapel. And before you went to the New World, or before you went out into the ocean, and this certainly was after America was discovered. But before that, it was really considered kind of the end of the world. Before we knew the earth was round, at least in Europe, the islands in the coastland of Ireland was the end of the world. Hmm. So this was a great place for you to come in contact with God, because you're at the edge. That was the veil. Oh, yeah. And so this particular oratory that I visited was fantastic. It had kind of beehive-like roof, so you had stone walls that arched up and then peaked at the top. So both the roof, the ceiling, and the walls were stone. And it was Mm -hmm. intimate in scale. And there was a very small window on the eastern side. And for me, it was kind of like that was a view of the past. That was your view Uh, to the east and your past. And if you were in there and then turned around and went back to the entry, there was a very, very tight entrance. And it was very thick. It was over a meter thick, partly to hold up the stone, but Mm -hmm. partly creating a compression space. And so when you went out, 
all of a sudden you had this incredible release. You could feel the air around you releasing, and you breathed in this highly oxygenated sea air. And then you had a view of the clouds in the sky and a view of the sea. And I'm sure it was designed, in a sense, to elicit that kind of an experience, because then it was your connection to God, or it was your connection to going to the Americas, going to the New World. So it was very positive and really a beneficial experience. Now, my experience of this place was both good and bad. The bad part was it took me forever to be able to experience the place without crowds of people taking their selfies and being very noisy, not being very reverent with the space. And I would have to wait as much as an hour to an hour and a half for it to clear. So I would be the only one there. And then I could do a clearing for myself and then go in and try to experience the space like it had been experienced, let's say, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was able to actually get this sense of what this space was all about. And next to it was this, and I've never seen this before, was a flattened area. It was a rectangular area of stone. I think it was like a grave area for one of the original pastors of the place. And at the headstone was the circle with the Celtic cross in it, the equal arm cross. That has very particular special meaning to me. As you can probably say. I can see that. I wear one. Wear my neck. <laughs> the equal arm cross, first of all, is the symbol for the earth in astronomy, is the circle with the cross inside. But esoterically, the cross represents earth and the circle represents heaven. So it is, in a sense, a thin place because it's that combination of both earth and heaven placed into one shape. And so here it was all of a sudden at the headstone in this little grave area. So that was kind of the finishing touches for this particular. Another experience I had was, and it was recommended by a lot of people, was to go to Skellig Islands. The smaller Skellig is a bird sanctuary, basically, so you're not allowed to get on there. The larger one's called Skellig Michael. And it took about an hour to get there by boat. There were only 12 of us on the boat, with the exception of the pilot of the boat, which was interesting. 12 is a sacred number in a sense, and it was just the right number of people to go to the island. They have two kinds of tours. One is you just kind of go on a boat and go around it a couple of times, take pictures and go back home. And ours was one where you actually disembark and then get to spend a couple hours on the island. The first thing we did was to go around it. It was just awesome. I mean, it was just wow. this most beautiful kind of Irish green and this green mm -hmm. stone and rugged peaks and this interface between the rugged stone and where lichen and grasses were allowed to grow. It was just really, really gorgeous. And then we landed and we got out and I looked up and it was kind of looked up almost a sheer cliff and there was a little bit of a saddle there. And so the rock went up into the green and then just at the top of the green was the moon. It was like a full moon. Wow. <laughs> so, wow, this is really special. And yeah. that's something you can't say, well, I'm going to go to Skellig Island and take a picture of this, of the moon and, and the cliffs and everything. You just, you, yeah. know, you just have to discover these things on your own. Then we were confronted with 618 stone steps that were laid by the monks thousands of years before. And about 1,500 years before, no handrails, and the steps were variable 
it was really kind of scary. And luckily, I had a walking stick. And I found out that going up was not quite as scary as coming down later. Climbing up these steps and traversing back and Mm -hmm. forth, going back up. And then you get about three quarters of the way up, and you get to what's called a Christ saddle. And it's just like a little saddle between the two main peaks in Skelly. And then you go to the right and up some more steps to the monastery site itself. And it was really exciting to get there. The views from this site were just extraordinary. And there was a kind of a terraced plaza, very intimate terraced plaza, that was surrounded by a series of these beehive caves. And Mm. they were more like dome beehive caves made out of the same stone that the oratory was made out of, or similar designs. And I went into several of them, and the stone floors were slightly sloped, and you could imagine what it was being Mm -hmm. like. You had some sort of a straw mattress or some kind of mattress there with your head on the higher end. And some of them had, again, very small windows, but then this opening. And then to imagine living there year-round, inclement weather. And can you imagine living there in the winter? You know, no, hardly, hardly not in not summer. an island. <laughs> no, just their belief and belief system must have been so strong to be able to endure that. Uh, there was a small garden area where they produced most of their produce, and there was fishing, so they they got fish. And I think on occasion they boated over to the mainland and got supplies. But it was really quite exciting to kind of imagine them on this island again at the end of the world. And there was actually one hermitage that was on the very western, just off the western peak, that must have been awesome if you were into shut down the rest of the world and come in contact with God, right? That's <laughs> so interesting, Bill. Yeah. Rudolf Otto talks about the numinous as having the qualities of mystery and fascination and terror. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until coming down... That I got to experience terror. <laughs> and before we went up, the guide said that just a couple of years ago, a couple of Americans had fallen to their death. So, oh, God. I was just, you know, yeah. And I could see it. And you're standing, it's like standing at the top of a very steep staircase with variable stone steps and no handrails. Mm. And having to go down and going, like I said, going down is a lot more difficult than going up. So anyway, I finally got the courage to go down, and I made it to the bottom, and I couldn't wait to get to the bottom, to tell you the truth. Yeah. (laughs) And it was was there, you know, I I took my shoes off and put them in the water, you know, I was sitting on Mm -hmm. a wharf there. And that's when one of these experiences really happened. It was just like I really relaxed and became open to the experience. Mm -hmm. I'm going to share one more thing that happened to me. Two Google employees, friends of my son and daughter-in-law, lived in Dingle there, and they hosted me in a way. And I spent an afternoon with them, and I asked them this question, where do you go for thin places? And it wasn't the typical tourist places. O'Sheen took me to all the tourist places. And he said, you know, it's funny, people come to Ireland with all these sort of magical intentions. They think they're going to see fairies and pan and and, uh, Mm -hmm. and all this magical stuff, and they don't. Ireland is an island, at least the Republic of Ireland, of five million people, and they're contemporary people, you know. They have cell phones and cars. (laughs) I was being driven around in a Tesla, you know. It was quite amazing. The everyday 
Irish is not necessarily looking for leprechauns. They might mm-hmm. be looking right. for a, a tall glass of Guinness. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, they said for them it was the beach. And there was a place called mm-hmm. Inch Beach, which was several miles away. And I stopped there, and it's just absolutely beautiful. And I began to think, when you go to a beach, and this is true anywhere in the world, you do have the opportunity to experience it as a thin place. You have all the mm-hmm. elemental qualities mm-hmm. of the sand, the water, the rhythmic qualities of the surf coming in and out. And if you're lucky enough to have a beautiful sunset, you have that changing quality of light. And I could really see where that became their thin place. Oh, my gosh. Wait, I had to stop you right there because that just pulled on my heartstrings, Phil. Because coming from a very, very Irish family, it was always referred to the sunset and sunrise. Whenever we'd see things like that, we always call them when heaven kissed the earth or when earth kissed heaven or whatever, you know, vice versa. That mm-hmm. was always a saying in our Irish family was, oh, it's the moment when heaven kisses the earth, when there was a sunrise mm-hmm. or sunset. So, yeah. yeah, everything you just said was very, I felt it. I did have one magical time when I was up at the monastery. A friend of mine said that when I go there to touch the earth, so I'm up at the monastery and there's hardly any earth there. I mean, it's just like all stone gravel. And then I found a small patch right in the center of where the monastery site is. And I sat down on a step and I dug my hands into the earth and it was like the richest, darkest earth you can imagine. I mean, it was just incredible. And I pulled a piece out and I actually took a photograph of it and it's in my book. And it was when I left recalling that moment that I didn't see leprechauns or fairies, but what I did see or experience was the magic of the land of Ireland. And the Irish really love the land that's there. They call it the Ire. It's the Ire. A-Y? Is it A-Y-R-E? Isn't that it or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, that was kind of one of my magical takeaways, I guess, from the trip. I mean, I had a lot of Yeah. I love all of that. Just talking about biophilia and nature and thinking about all the work that you've done in both. And maybe I'm asking a rhetorical question, but like, how do you feel they or do they relate to each other? That's a great question. And as you know, I'm going to be giving a presentation to the Biophilic Summit. And because it's a biophilic summit and it's going to be on thin places, I felt like I need to to make a bridge or begin to discuss Mm -hmm. the intersection of these two ideas. The first thing that came to mind, and this is kind of negative in a sense, is that it seems like a lot of movements are trying to be more inclusive of any other movement. Like agricultural urbanism was trying to eclipse new urbanism. Biophilic urbanism is trying to eclipse you know, those. So which one becomes the greatest envelope or the umbrella that has the greatest amount of inclusivity? There is this attempt. So now all of a sudden I'm doing thin places, right? Mm-hmm. So where where does the spiritual aspects of all of this occur? Of course, in my mind, it's the biggest <laughs> of them all. It's the most inclusive. Mm-hmm. But I'm not trying to make it into a movement, but I'm just trying to understand its relationship to the other, let's say, movements, if mm-hmm. you call them those. I went back to look at some of the objectives of or some of the qualities and some of the patterns that make up biophilic space and found out that they're really similar. And there's a huge correspondence between the two. 
Mm. And even one of Killert's and Bill Browning's patterns is awe. But it's seen as one in mm-hmm. a number. It's one of 72 or one of 15. See, I see it as the one. <laughs> you know, so it's, sure. it's the one that defines a thin place. But it's the other patterns that are really interesting, especially because I mentioned that a thin place is, in the first instance, a place. Mm. And places have particular characteristics, whether it's a biophilic place or a thin place. Those characteristics relate to the patterns that are either biophilic or the patterns that support thin places. I found that to be really interesting. For example, these are just a few of the patterns that coexist with both thin places and biophilic environments. Access to nature, prospect and refuge, inside-outside relationships, bounding, plant and animal life, natural materials, the elements, views and vistas, sensory connections, spatial qualities, transitional spaces, central focal point, light in all forms, geomorphy, historic connections, patina of time, attraction and beauty, and awe. So these are just things that I pulled out that these are biophilic patterns, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I could be describing any one of the projects that I've talked about, like Skellig Island or the Oratory in Bingo, in terms of these particular patterns, I guess. So they do share a tremendous amount, where I think biophilia, because of the nature of its name, which comes from biology in a sense, is really oriented more towards nature and biological environments and how Mm -hmm. human environments can begin to either echo or benefit from that. Where thin places are really more connected to immaterial rather than the material. Mm. Oh, that's nice. So it's a spiritual connection. But the way that you connect is done in similar ways. I love that. The Mm -hmm. sacred, the sublime, the spiritual, all connection. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the things that happens, I think, with thin places, and I'm sure it does with biophilic, but with thin places, what creates awe? According to Keltner, awe is basically vastness and the need for accommodation. So it's vast. Now, serenity is not vast. It's more intimate. So vast goes out and serenity goes in. Mm-hmm. It has these two different movements or flows. But what stimulates those particular emotions are the patterns, but certain patterns get exaggerated. So it's when those patterns get exaggerated, like the Empire State Building, like verticality is exaggerated, then it becomes awe-inspiring. Or you have the quality of light at a sunset and the color then it becomes the exaggerated pattern. And it's not necessarily just one. It can be a number of these patterns when they become exaggerated or vast. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of serenity, when they become incredibly soothing, where you can almost feel the texture on an iris or on a petal of a flower. You, know, you can see mm-hmm. that texture. That's when the sort of in-place emotions begin to get charged. I think that's so important, Phil, especially in a day and age that we're in right now where everyone's so out of their head and they're, you know, we're so busy in our technology and we're just always on this trying to witness things or 
we're somewhere else other than our own bodies and spaces, I feel. So this opportunity to find this numinous special place is so important to just kind of get back to self, I think, because we are so out of our own bodies so much of the time that we're missing these opportunities of beauty and serenity, like you said, and that sublime of just, it's right in front of us. We just need to be aware, like you're so highly aware of your scenarios that you're in. I think that's just another addition to make, okay, why we need to kind of disconnect from from our technology once in a while to be really present to witness these thin places because they're so profound for how we feel in that space and going forward, really. And then we're wanting to find it more or to say, okay, I'm open to it. So I think what you said before, you can't find a thin place, but if you're open to it, you can experience it. Something like that, I think you said before, but I, I always think about you stating that in the past. Well, Belton Lane is a, a landscape theologist, and he wrote a book called Landscapes of the Sacred. And he mm-hmm. came up with four axioms of sacred places. Mm-hmm. And the first one is that sacred places choose you don't. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, say I that again. That was that. great. Say that. It's fantastic. Yeah. Sacred places choose you don't. Okay. Because Amen. <laughs> we, we live in such a human-centric world, right? So we always think that we are going to be the determinant. Anyway, that I think is similar to what we were just talking about. Before we conclude, I've got some outcomes I'd like to read. I thought maybe the audience would be interested in these. Yeah, yeah, please. It's from the research from lots of different sources. And there's three categories of this research of the outcomes. First is what's called pro-individual behaviors, Mm pro-social behaviors, and pro-environmental behaviors. So the benefits benefit us individually, they mm-hmm. benefit us socially, and they benefit the environment around us, mm-hmm. including the planet. So pro-individual behaviors manifest with health-related lifestyles and increased well-being and positive health effects physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, particularly with stress reduction, increased activity, improved nutrition, and the perception of having more time. Experiences of awe and serenity help improve mood, increasing life satisfaction. Awe also can create clarity of mind and critical thinking. Awe and serene and serene experiences contribute to the small self-effect and self-transcendence and the experience of humility. And finally, mm-hmm. pro-individual behaviors can lead to positive post-experience accommodation. So that's wow. the first outcome. The second one, pro-social behaviors are broad or a broad class of behaviors defined as involving costs for the self and resulting in benefits for others. They manifest with positive social relations that promote interaction, friendship, generosity, empathy, gratitude, sharing, community building, and developing desirable traits that includes socially responsible behaviors to infectious diseases like COVID and potentials for greater satisfaction, uh, greater satisfaction <laughs> and longevity. All serene experiences can have greater sense of connectedness, supporting pro-social behaviors, including cooperation, altruism, as well as what is called mutualism. Pro-environmental behaviors manifest in positive attitudes about the environment and preservation of nature with biospheric values, awareness of climate change, global forest loss, and sustainable living practices, and sensitivity to consumption patterns and their effect on the environment. 
The mm. numinous sense of connectedness also extends to place and the environment leading to environmental awareness, conscious and action behaviors, thereby potentially reducing the negative environmental and climatic impacts caused by human activities. Those are the three, If because I've been asked this before, why thin places? I mean, what good are they in a sense and can you sell them? And in a way, I, <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested in selling them, but uh, I think it's important to be able to language or articulate what the benefits are. So they certainly benefit Absolutely. us physically and emotionally, and they benefit us socially and in the environment. So those are three areas that are really important. Yeah. Are those also listed in your book, by the way? Yeah. And the book's out, right? You finished, is it at the printer at this point? The manuscript is complete and has been submitted to the publisher, and it's now going through the copy editing process, which could take as much as a month or two. Typically, I get a chapter or two at a time back with all my typos and spelling mistakes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then the next is the copy editing, which you guys are probably familiar with. So this is when the text has all been approved, and then they mix in all the images. And then they put mm. them on the pages. And then, again, I have to go through, you know, page-by-page page approval. And then once that's all done, then they do the cover design and all of that part. And then it goes into printing. So it's supposed to come out in early July. Okay. So I'm quite excited about that. Yeah. I think we're all quite excited about that. I can't we're wait so to excited. come out. <laughs> well, well you. and, and you're going to work, we'll probably have you do some form of a book signing of any of your previous books when we're at the oh, summit sure. in April. Yeah. But I feel like I could talk to you for another hour because I, I, you know, and maybe we'll do another conversation because I really love the idea of thinking about a thin place, whether that's a natural setting or an architectural building, and then being able to define the attributes in it, which I know mm. you're going to do for us at the summit. And I don't know if we'd be able to, because it's visual, we'll have to think if we could do it on a podcast. But I think it's so important to heighten people's awareness, not only that these places exist, like we have a name for it with these mm -hmm. outcomes, but then being able to identify them and understand the why. Because I think for some people, that's really important to understand well, why is it making me feel so good? So maybe we'll dive into that in another conversation. That sounds great. Well, Phil, thank you for your time. And as always, we absolutely adore the conversations with you, your wealth information. Lots of enlightenment. Yeah, come get his book. Uh, put a pre-order in when it's ready and we'll put it in the show notes and come see us at the summit, I guess, and meet Phil in person. I know. Phil, I can't wait to hear you speak. I know I'm excited to see your presentation and talk about this again. Bye, Phil. Everybody, you. Okay, take Bye. care. Okay, where to even begin? <laughs> I don't even know. What was your biggest takeaway from that conversation, even if you couldn't even narrow it down? Well, I'm not sure that I can narrow it down, but the first thing that comes to mind is the idea that Phil presented of sacred places choose, you don't. Oh my gosh, I love that so much too. Yeah, it really gets to the heart of something we talked about earlier in the conversation, how you really can't plan so much for these experiences, right? You can go to a place like Ireland expecting to find leprechauns and fairies, but you'll probably be disappointed. <laughs> now, if you go in with an open mind and no specific set of expectations, perhaps the sacred will find you. Yes. And I was obviously really interested in our entire conversation about Ireland because of my Irish roots. 
And I was especially struck by the way that all these incredible places that Phil describes sort of combine nature and architecture. Ah, okay. So what do you mean by that? Dig in a little more. Okay. Well, it would be a monastery or some kind of structure, but surrounded by cliffs in the ocean. So you had this real coming together of earthly and sacred to create this really spiritual thin place experience. Yeah, no, no. I do really like that. It's fascinating. So I was also struck by the way Phil talked about the difference between an awe experience and a serenity experience and how both can really count as thin place experiences. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And when you're having a thin place experience, you can flip back and forth between the two. Yeah, I know. Phil is so good. He is so good. And the other overlap is thin places in biophilic patterns. Yeah. So I really like that biophilic patterns create these ideal conditions for a thin place experience, especially thinking about mystery, prospect and refuge, which you know is one of my favorites, dappled Mm -hmm. light and all that good stuff we learned from Bill Browning. Yes. Okay. I just got the chills. (laughs) Okay. Like we've already mentioned, if you're fascinated by thin places as we are, you can hear Phil speak at the Biophilic Leadership Summit next month in Serenby. Head to our show notes for details and pre-order Phil's new book. I love this conversation with Phil and I'm beyond excited to learn more at the summit. I am too. Okay, Monica. See you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. 